This morning, our scripture comes from 1 John, the first chapter, first verse through the ninth verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness. All we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Good morning. We are uh, this morning going back to something we took a break from, I don't know, sometime in the middle of last year. And that is uh, walk through the book of John. And uh, we stopped doing that for a while, and we did one thing, and that led to another thing. And, well, now all that's over. We've been talking about uh, what kind of church we are for a long time. And uh, one thing about what kind of church we are is we are a Bible church. And... Uh, well, that means we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and so it's true. And everything it says, everything it asserts to be true, is true, because God is true. Um, and that means something about how we do as a church, one of the key things, if we're uh, going to be the church, and this, by the way, you could take this anywhere you go, and it's essential if you're looking for a church to be a part of, it is absolutely essential. The reformers said, this is like the definition of the church, of a real church, an actual church, as opposed to something maybe that claims to be a church, but isn't actually part of the body of Christ. And of course, they 
meant this in reference to the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, it might apply in various ways. And one of the key things they said, there were really two things. This is the first. The correct preaching of the gospel. The word of God. So in the ordinary life of the church, what I am supposed to do is teach the scriptures. And I'm supposed to teach the scriptures as the scriptures are. So one of our practices in this church, though we have not been really practicing it for the last several months, is to simply work our way through the text of the scriptures in the order that they are presented to get the whole counsel of the word of God. And uh, this is a good practice because it makes me pay attention and hopefully then you pay attention to things we might otherwise just kind of pass over. Like, oh, that's hard to figure out, so uh, we'll just skip that and go on to something we're interested in. So when we do what we are normally to do, this is it. We begin at the beginning of the book of John. We talk about the context of the book of John. We talk about the people who wrote, the person who wrote it, the people he wrote it for in the beginning, what therefore it actually means, and we go step by step through the whole thing and we get the book of John as the message of the book of John. Not just some selected bit out of it, but the thing in its context. Now, I I got into all that because I just wanted to say what we're returning to today is the ordinary life of the church. The ordinary life of the church doesn't spend too much time strategizing. It simply pays attention to Christ. The Christ that is the message of the word of God. And so when we pay attention to Christ, things are transformed. And in fact, we're going to see that in this text this morning. So here's where we left off at the book, in the book of John. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> now, we're used to claims of the divinity of Christ We believe the claim of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is God, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. We're used to that. So when he says, before Abraham was, I am, we're not shocked. But the people he said it to were horrified. And it says right here at the end of chapter 8 of the book of John, verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. You can't say that. Now, 
because it's clear that what he's saying is, I am, I am. Hmm. Well, it's not a completely foreign thing for a Jewish person to think that perhaps the Messiah is God in person. In fact, if you were to read the prophecies of the Old Testament correctly, you would anticipate that. Uh, so it's not just that here you have a man claiming to be God. It's this man. Because when God shows up, he's not supposed to behave like this guy behaves. We expect him to look like God, to be glorious, to be the, the, the vindication of the nation of Israel, which has, since the days of, the, of Ezra in the Old Testament, restored itself to the righteous life demanded by the law of Moses. That's what these people thought of themselves. And so they think we're good and what Messiah will do when he shows up is vindicate our goodness, uh, toss out all our enemies and establish the kingdom of Israel in the promised land. Jesus didn't act like that at all. So they're having this argument about him being possessed by a demon and them seeking to kill him and uh you're not children of Abraham. We are too. And he says to them at the end of that conversation, Abraham rejoiced the day I came. They're like, what? You're not even 50. Now that might tell you something about how old they are. <laughs> they say, you're not even 50. You've seen Abraham, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's where we left off. Now, in the middle of that, well, not really in the middle, but really at the beginning of that conversation, Jesus made this claim. This is in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. In fact, this whole segment of the book of John is organized around that theme of the light of the world and the light of life. And so we start in chapter 9. 
As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no work can be done. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John says, sticks in here, the meaning of the word Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I think the most surprising part of that whole story is he went. But we'll come back to that maybe. I mean, he's sitting there by the side of the road. This guy comes along. He has this conversation about him, not with him. He said he talk, he takes, he spits on the ground. He stirs up some mud. Now, the blind guy, maybe he doesn't catch all this, right? But he takes that, that mud and he puts it on the guy's eyes and he says, now, go wash in the pool. That's all he, he just says, go wash in the pool. And the guy goes. Okay, that's surprising to me. But let's begin at the beginning. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Here's the thing. The man didn't see him, but he saw the man. Now, I'd like to begin by just pointing out to you that where, whoever Jesus passes by, he sees a man blind from birth. When Jesus encounters me, he sees a man blind from birth. That all these disciples are blind from birth. This we know, uh, according to the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, Verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the condition of all humanity, blind. Now, of course, in this case, we're talking about 
not just a spiritual blindness, as though that wasn't the hugest problem possible, but the blindness, the physical blindness. And this guy's always been blind. He was born in blindness. Jesus sees him. I was born in blindness. Jesus saw me. But Jesus sees him. Now, the disciples, you know how they are, like us. They, uh, they ask a question. They say, Rabbi. That means teacher. That means here's an interesting theological discussion we could have now that we've spotted a guy in great suffering. I don't know. I think that's a common condition of us as well. When we observe great suffering, we'd like to explore explanations. We'd rather not just deal with the suffering itself. Here's the thing. They don't really see the guy. Jesus does. We can tell they don't because they're talking to him and each other about him. You know how this goes, right? When people talk about you and you're standing right there. Is it his sin or his parents? Wow, there's a lot of assumptions in that question, aren't there? How do we account for this suffering if we believe in a just God? All suffering is justice. So somebody sinned. That is the reason why this man was born blind. Was it him? And you might think, wow, how could that even be possible? How, how's he going to sin before he's even born? Of course, maybe he's judged for some sin he did after he was born, before he's born. I don't know. Could have been his parents, in which case we might all say, well, how fair is that? But we believe in a just God. And so we think we need to account for suffering in terms of justice. But here's the thing. Our belief in a just God is, well, it carries a very low sense of justice. It actually has very little appreciation for the offensiveness of sin in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. Because here these guys are going, who sinned, this guy or his parents? This is very easy to do with reference to another person. When suffering happens to me, I think, what did I do to deserve this? It's the same line of thinking, but you know what? 
I'm really asking the question because I can't think of what I did to deserve this. Where if I had any real sense of the righteousness of God about what I deserve, it would be far worse than any suffering I've ever encountered in this life. The judgment for any and all sin is eternal damnation. So if I get a flat tire and I'm asking what did I do to deserve this, I've missed something. I don't really understand real justice and I really don't understand the impossible demands of the righteousness of God. There's something more happening. Now, what Jesus' response is here, this suffering in this man's life is not a punishment for anyone's sin. He's saying, look, this isn't just about justice. This is here so that this today, what's going to happen today might happen. The, what's he call it? The works of God might be displayed. We need to stop and notice when we're talking about God, we are in over our heads. But God sees fit to show up in this man's life in person. And to use this man's suffering as the occasion for the demonstration of who he is. The light of the world. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to just examine this argument that happens when this man's blindness is healed. <laughs> and I think, wait, why would that cause an argument? Why wouldn't that be universally recognized as the most fantastic thing we've ever seen in our lives? Because the demonstration of the light of the world scares us. So they ask him, who sinned? He says, well, yeah, it wasn't sin in this case. And what I want to notice is we're broken and we're powerless to solve our problem. And that is a question that goes beyond the administration of justice. If the Lord is going to show up and redeem us, that means more than the mere satisfaction of the penalty of our sin, as though that weren't the biggest deal ever, and he certainly accomplishes that. But there's more that needs to be done. Because what we know from what we read in 2 Corinthians is, Jesus can die on the cross and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high, and we will entirely miss it. 
because we are blind. And in fact, what Paul says in that passage is, it's those whose blindness is healed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God that actually recognize Jesus. And only those. You see, beyond dealing with problems of justice, there's a problem of brokenness, there's a problem of blindness, there's a problem of death. The book of Ephesians says we are dead in our sins. But God has raised us together with Christ. The works of God that are about to be demonstrated in this miracle, God works a similar work in the redemption of any believer. There's nothing more, mirac there's nothing more miraculous about this than there is about the fact that you trust in Christ as your Savior. The works of God. <clears throat> this man's suffering provides the occasion for the display of God's work, the demonstration that Jesus is the light of the world, the one who brings sight where otherwise there was blindness. If we uh, remember the first part of we read that passage from 1 John, apparently John, this idea of light and life is a big theme for him because at the beginning of the gospel here in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. <laughs> in him was life, and the life was the light of men. As we saw, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we walk in fellowship with God. He says, that true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. We need this light, <laughs> the light of life. And Jesus says here, I'm the light of the world. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring light to this one blind guy. The disciples standing around talking about who, who did something to deserve this, they need it just as bad as anyone. The Pharisees who are going to reject it need it. By the time we get to the end of chapter 9, we're going to see who the real blind ones are. Because here Jesus does this amazing thing right before their eyes. It is utterly undeniable. It is also the primary sign given in the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. He gives sight to the blind. 
They see it for themselves. He's standing in front of them. He came to his own, and his own received him not. There's blindness. He says, I'm the light of the world. This guy is here for a demonstration of that reality. So, he does this very strange thing. Very strange. I, I went and read about six commentaries to try to figure out what on earth mud made from spit in the guy's eye. You know what they all say? This is a very strange thing. We study the history. We study the cultures around this. We can't figure this out. Here's the lesson we typically draw from this is Jesus just does something here. He could have done anything. He, in fact, in some cases, he just says, be healed, and, you know, the problem is solved. Even with blindness, he does that on other occasions. There's no need to put mud in the guy's eye. He might do it this way, that way, or another way. You know, if we heard the testimonies of every believer in this room, we would see he might do it this way, that way, or another way. Some of us have very strange tales. Like the utterly unexpected happened one day and that turned this or that or made me see something I hadn't seen before. Some of us have very ordinary tales. I regard my story as very ordinary. You know, my parents were believers. They raised me, telling me the gospel since before I was born. They taught me and taught me and taught me. And when I was still a very young child, I trusted in Christ. Here's the thing. That is no less a miracle than this. The conversion of any soul to faith in Christ is always the personal work of God to display the glory of God in the life of that person. Always. But the Lord uses means all different ways. And I've read statistics that say the average Christian has heard the gospel at least seven times before they tr actually put their faith in Christ. Those were statistics quoted by church growth people who said, so be sure to tell someone at least seven times. I'm not sure that's the right lesson because some people went in their hotel room and found a Bible in the drawer and they opened it up and they read something and they were suddenly realized the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that they'd heard all their whole life. Maybe that they'd never heard and they were redeemed. And as I said, there's a different story for every believer in this room. So one time Jesus heals the blind guy by saying, you're healed. And one time he heals the blind guy by smearing some mud in his eyes and telling him to go wash. I just think it's so funny though. 
here, the guy puts mud in your eye and then says, go wash. Like, you just put mud in my eye. You know what's really interesting about this whole story? We are given nothing about the guy. He says nothing. He doesn't do anything until Jesus says, go wash, and then he does it. He's just sitting there. Later in the story, we learn that he was a beggar, which is understandable given his condition. So Jesus says, here's some mud in your eye. Go wash in the pool called scent. So he's sent to the pool of scent. And one of the primary themes in the whole book of John is scent, scent, scent. Jesus did not show up in this guy's life by accident. He says it. He is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So now is the day. Now is the day I show up. Right after I've made this bold claim, I'm the light of the world. Right after I've made this bold claim before Abraham was, I am. I am, I am. And here again he says, now we'll show you light of the world. We'll show you light of the world. Now, it's apparent to me this guy knew who he was dealing with. Later on in the story, he says the name. He said, they ask him, who, who healed you? He says, Jesus made mud and opened my eyes. So he knew who he was dealing with. So when Jesus says, now, go wash, a guy went and washed. I think he expected to be healed. But maybe he was just hoping, or maybe that was not on his mind at all. But he went and washed, and it says he came back seeing. This guy believed in Jesus enough to just, you know, do what he said. He goes and washes, and he comes back seeing. When we encounter the light of the world, when the Spirit of God works in our hearts and minds to see Christ as he is, it changes everything. We come back seeing. In 2 Corinthians, the chapter after the one we referred to before, chapter 5, we read this. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. We have encountered the love of Christ, and it changes everything. It literally compels us. I think any real encounter with the real love of Christ will change something about you. It will change who you are. It will change your very capacities in this world. Like going from blind to seeing clearly. 
Have you ever had the experience of you could not figure out your situation and then suddenly things became clear? Well, the realization of the truth of the gospel is always that experience. It says the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but who him, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It changes everything. If Christ died for me, I, I don't live for myself anymore. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We come back seeing. Therefore, <clears throat> if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Go and wash, come back seeing. Trust me, receive healing. Now, this is not some kind of promise that whatever type of healing I think I want, I might get. But it is the promise of new vision. This says, we regard no one according to the flesh. It changes how I see you or how you see me. I now have the eyes of Christ and I might exercise the compassion in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you, disciples, are the light of the world. You see, now that this man has been healed of his blindness, his captivity in darkness, he is about to become a light bearer. We're going to talk about that next time. He is about to be come a completely different person because now he sees Christ as he is. This is the reality in our lives as well. Jesus came by you one day and he saw you. You don't see yourself as well as he sees you. He realizes all your suffering. He's shared in all your suffering. He knows your problem. He knows your sin. And he has chosen to demonstrate the works of God, to put on display the works of God in your life. To restore you to fellowship with the living God by his death and resurrection, his dealing with the problems of justice, to bring you back into fellowship with God so that you can walk as an image bearer of God the same way he does.
And so by your encounter with the light of the world, you become the lights of the world. And you don't share anything you haven't been given. You see people where they really are because you've seen yourself where you really were. As we come to the table of the Lord's Supper, (laughs) I hope it's an occasion of Jesus passing by. (laughs) What we're called to do in this sacrament, in this ordinance of the church, and by the way, the second thing the reformers said about what makes a church a church is the correct administration of the sacraments. We come to the church and what we, what we do in this singularly Christian act of worship at the table, what we do here is practice receiving Christ. He came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. And so when I come to the table, I say, yes, Christ, me, give it to me. I want Christ. Now, this is something you do once and for all, and you're you're converted, you are changed, you've seen him, you know him, and yet at the heart of Christian worship, is this reenactment of the gospel message. This is never outgrown. It is always the basis from which we operate. It is the simple, pure gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And we say, amen. That is for me. You don't bring anything to this table. It is a reminder that you don't bring anything. The blind guy had no light. He did not provide for his own healing. We just get it. (laughs) Here's something I say a lot, but that's because it needs to be said a lot. The main thing about being a Christian is not what you do. It's what God has done. It's not something you provide. It's all about what he provides. The main thing about being a Christian is getting. And so we come because we're invited. And we see, yeah, Christ is it. So we come to the table and we receive these symbols of our Savior, we eat them and drink them. We say, yes, yes, yes. I take what he gives. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for sending your light into the world, the very life of the Son of God. 
Lord, we thank you for the Spirit of God who has worked that miracle in our hearts so that we see the Savior. Lord, we come to the table to remind ourselves that what we have we receive from you, that our salvation we receive from you, that our healing we receive from you, that our capacity to bear the light of the world we receive from you. Lord, we pray that we would live, we would pitch our tents between the cross and the empty tomb so that we are always reminded of these things. We thank you for this ceremony you've provided to the church to keep the cross of Christ at the center of what we are and what we do. For these things we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.